our Bible reading now. If you'd like to follow with me, in the seats in front of you, there's a black covered Bible. And the reading is John's account of Jesus' crucifixion. can be found on page 1086. Starting at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over then to them to be crucified. So so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received a drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But 
When they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Uh, it's lovely to be in church with you on this day, which is uh, somber but also joyful. My name's Scott, if I haven't met you. Of course, it's still Scott, if I have met you. That doesn't change. That's still a stupid joke, isn't it? Let me pray. Actually, before I pray, if you could get your Bibles open, or keep them open at the passage that Kath just read for us, that would be super helpful to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your great love for us that sent your eternal Son to us to live among us and then to die for us. As we celebrate those deep truths today, uh, impress upon us your great love for us and teach us something new about it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This year we've been introduced to some new words, some new concepts, fake news and alternative facts. Fake news, alternative facts. Fake news websites, are, uh, they deliberately publish kind of hoaxes, disinformation, pretending to be real news often using kind of social media to drive interest, maximise impact. Now, fake news isn't satire, which is designed to entertain. Fake news is designed to mislead readers, and often for financial or political gain. And it often comes out of Eastern Europe, places like Russia. That's fake news. Now, in January this year, the White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, he deliberately exaggerated the, uh, the number of people who attended the President's inauguration ceremony. And when this was being discussed on a live TV interview with White House Special Counselor Kellyanne Conway, she defended the Press Secretary, claiming that he was giving alternative facts. And the reporter called her on it and, and said, listen, alternative facts are not facts. They are falsehoods. They're just lies. And Conway later defended her choice of words uh, defining alternative facts as additional facts, alternative information. But you see, the damage was already done, wasn't it? And that phrase, alternative facts, uh, was widely described as Orwellian. Uh, that is, resembling George Orwell's classic uh, 19, uh, sorry, political novel called 1984. You might have read it in high school like I do, it did. Uh, and that introduced the whole concept of doublespeak, that is, you say one thing, but you kind of mean the opposite. Now, here's the thing. By the end of this January, sales of the novel 1984 had increased by 9,500%, making it the number one bestseller on Amazon.com. Fake news, alternative facts, double speak, all threats to the truth. Of course, we uh, see and think of truth as a very positive thing, but we somehow think there's not as much truth around as there ought to be. Mark Twain, another famous author, said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. You, know, you don't need to uh, keep track of lies that you might have told. But the head of Fox News once said, no, 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 truth is whatever people will believe. 
When Jesus was being questioned by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, just prior to his death, Jesus said that his kingdom was a kingdom of truth and that he'd come into the world to testify to the truth. And the Roman governor cynically asked, what is truth? I mean, what is it really? And how can you ever know it? And who cares about it anyway? We've got busy lives to lead. And so it's so refreshing to hear the words of the Apostle John, Jesus' biographer, talking about the death of Jesus in verse 35 that's in your Bibles in front of you, where John says, The man who saw it, that is the death of Jesus, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also might believe. Now this Gospel of John, which we've been looking at all term long here at St. Matthew's, has testified to the three years of Jesus' ministry. It has a special focus on Jesus' last night with his disciples and his arrest and his trial. But in verse 35, speaking about himself, John says, A man saw the death of Jesus, and that this man, John, has given his testimony. His testimony is true, and he testifies so that we might believe. And so today, firstly, we're going to need to see or hear that testimony, that truth. And then we need to understand its significance. And we're going to need both of those if we are to believe on this most somber morning of Good Friday. And so that's our plan for today. We're going to hear John's testimony. Then we're going to understand its significance so that we might believe. And so firstly for today, as we look at quite carefully at John's truthful testimony to the death of Jesus we see that Jesus really died in fulfilment of Scripture. He didn't just swoon, he didn't just pass out or faint or pretend to die. He really died in Jerusalem, as we've just heard, just as Scripture foretold that he would. And to assemble his testimony, and this is why I need you to have your Bibles open, uh, it's as if John casts a spotlight upon one group of participants in the death of Jesus and just pauses on that group, sees what goes on with them before moving on to the next group. I wonder if you've ever been to a play or a musical or some kind of theatrical production where there are, there are multiple groups of people on the stage and the spotlight shines on one group so you can see what's going on with them before moving on to the next group. I wonder if you've seen that sort of thing. Well, it's just like that here. Earlier in verses 1 to 16, Pilate, uh, the Roman governor of the land, he interacts with Jesus and the Jewish crowd, which was begging for Jesus' blood. And Pilate first flogs Jesus, perhaps to try and soften him up, or perhaps to appease the Jewish crowd, hoping that a beating might just be enough to get them to let him go. But they have that crazed kind of bloodlust in their eyes, and the sight of the bruised and bloody Jesus makes them more determined than ever to have him killed. Of course, Pilate tries to coax the Jews into releasing Jesus, but to no avail. They want him dead. And when Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest, get this, he's meant to be the representative of God. In other words, the king of the universe. He replies, we have no king but Caesar. That is, the Roman emperor whom they detested. So Pilate eventually hands Jesus over to be crucified. We pick that up in verse 16. A death which the renowned Jewish historian Josephus called the most wretched of deaths. It was so bad that no Roman citizen was permitted to undergo it. 
Well, leaving Pilate and the Jewish crowd, the Apostle John shifts the spotlight onto the soldiers in verse 16. That is the, the Roman execution squad of four soldiers, experts in death by crucifixion. And he says quite simply there in verse 18, have a look in your Bibles, that they crucified him between two other criminals. And there's a flashback to the sign that was fastened above the cross that summarized the so-called offense of the criminal. But after that brief flashback, the spotlight is once again, verse 23, on this gang of four, the Roman executioners. And as was the custom, they split Jesus' clothes, his robe, his belt, his sandals, his scarf, one for each of them, I suppose, and then cast lots, kind of rolled the dice for a fifth, a seamless undergarment, unwittingly fulfilling the words of Psalm 22, verse 18 in the Old Testament that were written a thousand years earlier, which read, They divided my clothing among them and cast lots for my garment. Well, in verse 25, John moves the spotlight once more to the huddle of supporters who were there till the very end. There's the women, Jesus' mum and his aunt, Mary Magdalene, maybe one or two others, the women, first at the empty tomb on Sunday and last here at the cross. And the Apostle John is there, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of this gospel, the man who saw Jesus die and the one who has given us his testimony and the one who from this point on would take Jesus' mother into his own home to ensure her welfare. And as that spotlight shifts, it illumines a very bleak picture, don't you think? I don't know if you've had the experience of uh, just finishing something recently. It doesn't have to be something big, but just that finishing something, it's a, it's a good feeling. You know, you've emailed that report to the boss. You've set the proofs off to the printers. You've given the manuscript to the publishers. Students, you've done the bibliography and the footnotes. Middle-aged men and women, you've come back in one piece from your bike ride. You finished the case, you finished the term, maybe you just finished the mowing, <laughs> whatever it is. It's a lovely feeling, isn't it, as you press send and the report goes off to the boss. Or you hold that thick bundle of paper that is your assignment or your report, you hold it in one hand and you staple it together in the other. Or you enjoy that cappuccino post the bike ride, or you just look over your newly cut lawn. Lovely feeling to finish. Well, as John moves the spotlight once more, he shines it finally onto the Lord Jesus. And it's anything but lovely, but it is all about completion. It's all about finishing. Some hours have passed since Jesus was first hoisted up on the cross. And uh, by verse 28, we are in the last moments of Jesus' life. Nearing the very end, he permits himself a drink that would fulfill, John tells us again, the words of Psalm 22, My strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and then John tells us that Jesus knew that all was now completed his work of absorbing the righteous judgment of God for sinful humanity was completed his task of enduring the physical excruciation of the cross you know that we get our word excruciating from the word crucifixion it's the same word his, his task of enduring not just the physical excruciation of the cross, not just the hatred of the Jewish uh, crowd, not just the mockery of the Roman soldiers, not even the humiliation of a criminal's death, but the intense spiritual pain 
of the eternal Father turning his face and his favour away from his beloved Son and instead the hell of having the penalty for a world full of sins poured onto him. In his death, all that was complete. And that's why Jesus, with his very last words, says, It is finished. Which could just as easily be rendered, It is completed. It is accomplished. It was accomplished. And then Jesus died. John shifts the focus one more time in verse 31. And uh, oddly enough, strangely enough, the, the Jewish leaders are getting all religious. They're getting all churchy and probably don't see the irony of that, having just given over an innocent man, God's perfect son no less, to the most wretched of deaths. You see, like us, for them it was a special religious holiday week and they wanted to be able to celebrate the Sabbath the next day. Wanted to be able to celebrate uh, the Sabbath the very next day. And for that to happen kind of needed all the bodies that were on the crosses to be taken down. You want to get, you know, polluted by them. And so they have the soldiers come in and they break the legs of the criminals. In that way, those who were being crucified would not be able to kind of lift their bodies up, pushing down on their feet in order to get more air into their lungs. You see, breaking the legs is a surefire way to speed up the excruciating process of dying. It would do just the trick. First for the criminal on the left, then for the criminal on the right. But have a look in your Bibles, verse 43. When they come to Jesus, he was already dead. No surprise, I guess, after the kicking that they had already given him. But to put the question beyond doubt, remember they were expert executioners. One soldier thrust a spear through the side of Jesus from which blood and water flowed suddenly. Evidently, it had ruptured his vital internal organs so that you could say quite literally that Jesus died with a broken heart. And again, John tells us in verse 36 and 37 that it fulfilled scripture that was written hundreds and in fact over a thousand years earlier. John was a man who saw it and he has given his testimony and his testimony is true. Jesus really died in fulfilment of the scriptures. Now we have heard that testimony that Jesus really died but secondly for today, what's the significance of that death for us? Well friends, that really is the question that the whole Bible answers. The Old Testament spells out the need for Jesus to die. The, the New Testament is devoted to explaining the significance and the depth of his death and his resurrection for us. And you could never say enough, but on this Good Friday, a few things we could say is that in death, Jesus became the true human, the true sacrifice, and the true king. Firstly, that Jesus really died means we have somebody who has entered the very the absolute nitty-gritty of human experience. I mean the details that he struggled for breath, that he felt the horror of death, that arrangements were made for his burial, means we have one who knows our experience completely, one who walks with us and among us, even into the very shadow of death. Do you know another religion where God actually comes to earth to be with the people that he has made? Is there another worldview 
Is there another philosophy that will do that for you? You got anything else that's going to provide you with that comfort in the darkest of hours? He really died. He was really buried. He was really human. And he really knows what it's like to be us. But not just human, he was also a sacrifice for us. And for folks with a Jewish background, the Apostle John's references are more obvious. That Jesus' death takes place during the Passover festival, which is a very important religious festival for Jewish folks, points to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. In fact, he is our final and lasting sacrifice. In the Passover festival, Jewish people remember the time when their ancestors in slavery in Egypt sacrificed a lamb, an innocent and unblemished animal, which representatively took their place and paid for their sins, so that when God's destroying angels swept through the land, it passed over only those houses which were covered by the blood of a sacrificed lamb. Jesus is a sacrifice just like that sacrifice. When John talks about wine vinegar on a sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant in verse 29, it would immediately remind John's first readers of the time when ancient Jews smeared the blood of the lamb across the front of their houses at Passover time with the branches of the hyssop plant. When Jesus' bones aren't broken by the soldiers in verse 33, it fulfilled that requirement for that first Passover lamb, which had to be a perfect animal whose bones were not to be broken. Jesus is a sacrifice. He is our Passover lamb who has taken the penalty that our sins, that our transgressions, that our turning away from God and the deep attitudes of our heart deserve so that God will not visit his wrath and judgment upon us but will pass over us because he poured it out on his beautiful and magnificent son in whom we trust. He is truly human. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And he is also the undisputed king. Despite all appearances, despite the way the Romans dressed him up more like a clown than a king, uh, twisting together a crown from thorns, dropping whatever passed for a royal robe onto his shoulders, mocking him, hail king of the Jews, yeah, hail the king of the Jews. Don't you see, when the Romans lifted him up onto that cross they weren't raising a criminal they were hoisting a king they were lifting him up for the whole world to see Uh, the jewish religious leaders thought that his death would end the matter but they had started a revolution man they had started a wildfire a kingdom that is still going today with increasing force and momentum if not in our English-speaking world, then in the hundreds of millions of people who are turning to follow Christ in Africa and Asia and South America. I'm talking about a kingdom that is not of this world, but is spreading into and through our world more today than it ever has beforehand. So from the outside, I get it, it looks like he was a defeated man. But the inward and spiritual reality is that he was raised up a triumphant king. And in his death... And in his subsequent resurrection that we celebrate on Sunday, his true humanity, his ultimate sacrifice, and his indisputable kingship is accomplished. 
But you'll remember from the start that John tells us he gave us this testimony to the truth of Jesus' death in fulfilment of scriptures written hundreds of years earlier, not just out of interest. He gave it verse 35 so that we might also believe. Of course, by belief, he's not just talking about intellectual agreement. He means the kind of muscular, wholehearted, hairy, battle-scarred belief that can actually change your life, that can transform you. And if you want an idea of what that looks like, you can read ahead verses 38 to 42, because in those verses, two fellas ask Pilate, the Roman governor, for Jesus' body. One of them was called Joseph of Arimathea. It says in verse 38, he'd been a secret follower of Jesus because he was afraid. Other was called Nicodemus. Uh, he'd visited Jesus at night earlier in John's Gospel because he too was afraid. And these two boys who used to be chicken rock up to the Roman governor, the one who had just handed Jesus over to die, and they say, now you give us his body. Nicodemus brought with him 75 pounds, that's 35 kilos of embalming ointments to treat Jesus' dead body. It was a ridiculous amount. I mean, way more than you'd ever use for a normal person. But about what you'd normally use for a king. You see, these two secret disciples have got themselves the kind of muscular, wholehearted, hairy and battle-scarred belief that waltzes up to Caesar's man in order to get Jesus' body. I don't know, maybe you've been a secret disciple too. Maybe you've been chicken. Maybe you've been holding stuff back from Jesus, our King, Kind of meanly, unextravagantly saying, no, you can't rule over that part of my life. That's off limits. I'm keeping that to myself. And not king over my career or my retirement or what I do with my body or what I do with my money, whatever it is. And I guess that I'm like that from time to time. Maybe you've only ever had intellectual agreement and nothing more. Maybe you've not even had that. I wonder today if you want more than that. Truth is in short supply, isn't it? Especially in an era of alternative facts and fake news. But this Apostle John saw Jesus die with his own eyes and he testified that he was actually buried and he tells the truth that we may see not just a dead man who suffered the cruelest of executions but so that we might see the true human, the ultimate sacrifice and the lifted up indisputable king. So that seeing this vision of Jesus, it will give us some muscular, wholehearted and extravagant belief that might actually transform us, that might actually change our lives. Friends, on this Good Friday, do you have that? And if you don't, is it something that you would really like to have? going to pray for us in just a moment but uh, before we do that I want to give everyone just a chance to quietly reflect for just a minute or so you might like to pray quietly you might just like to sit back and think uh, if you want to know more about this or you're not sure what you really believe or if you're interested in that soul course that Bruce was referring to earlier or you just have a question or a comment it's a good time to just jot something down on that connect card and be able to uh, pop it in 
in a little while. But a moment just to think, pray, write, whatever you want to do. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the truest of humans, the ultimate sacrifice, the lifted up King, all of which was accomplished by his death on the cross. Lord, forgive us for being secret disciples or being chicken or for holding stuff back from him, saying parts of our lives off limits. Uh, Forgive us perhaps for just intellectual agreement or for having even less than that. Move our hearts to love him and to believe in him wholeheartedly. And for friends here who may not yet have that, I pray that you'd move their spirits to embrace him as their sacrifice and king as well. And we pray these things in his beautiful name. Amen. Folks, we're going to finish our time together by singing. Uh, This is going to be our operatory song if you're one of our regulars. And if you're here as a guest, I hope that you uh, will actually feel